Welcome, I'm Moshe Ferber. And I am Ariel Munafon. And this is the Silver Lining Podcast, a podcast about security architecture. And today with us, we got uh, Yuval Reut, which is the CISO, and also the CIO for Riskified, a promising young company that is doing something really, really interesting in the area of uh, e-commerce. And Yuval is here to talk with us about how he turned his monolithic application uh, from uh, one traditional large monolithic environment into microservices. We're going to have an interesting talk. And uh, Yuval, let's begin. Let's talk about you and Riskified for a second. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit about yourself and your position there? Hi, good morning. So Riskified basically is an e-commerce enablement company. Um, the core competency of the company came through fraud analysis, um, and that was basically where the company started. And uh, it brought something very new into the, into the space by basically um, allowing e-commerce merchants to offload the liability and the actual process of approving orders through and looking for fraud um, to a new generation of products that basically allows them to shift the liability and to automate the whole process of fraud analysis. So let's take a little bit back and look at how things were actually done, let's say, five, seven years ago. Um, companies, um, fraud was happening all over the place, right? So we had uh, bots, we have account takeovers, we have stolen credit cards, we have the dark web. All of these things basically really, really generated a lot of fraud on the internet. And so companies had two challenges. One, they have to find this fraud. Um, and that actually creates around between 2 to 5% of their revenue is basically what comes out to be fraud. And on the second point, it actually drops a lot of their revenue because um, by not knowing who's a good customer, who's a bad customer, they actually um, decline a lot of people who are good customers. And so Riskify basically comes into that space and allows two things. One, it takes away the operational challenge of actually doing that because e-commerce merchants know how to sell e-commerce. We know how to do fraud analysis. And um, we are actually able to approve a lot more of their orders. And so that enables them to A, offload the whole operational aspects of it, and B, um, we have the ability to um, find much more fraud, and so that way we, we save them a lot of money on the thing. The, the, the same aspect to that also is that the company itself um, shifts over the liability to us. So if currently before they use some kind of a fraud, uh, fraud analysis company or chargeback guarantee is actually what we call the, the service, the, the, the fraud itself comes into a place where the company has to find it. And if they don't find it, the chargeback itself is something that the merchant has to pay. A lot of people think that the credit card company is who actually takes the process and takes the ownership of it. And that's true in a card present. So when you actually swipe your card in a restaurant or something like that. But when the card is not, it's a card not present transaction, the one who actually bears the, the liability is the e-commerce merchant. And so Riskified gives a solution that both takes the liability if the transaction comes back as fraudulent. And then the second tape allows them to basically focus on their core competency and not on fraud analysis. Yeah, great. Now, you're also the CISO, you handle the security, and you're also the CIO, which is you handle the all IT aspects. Now, this is not the first time that I see this kind of uh, structure in a software as a service company, which is very interesting by itself. I have a feeling this is because those companies are basically had security people before they had their IT. So they had their uh, security guys in place, 
before there was uh, anyone that uh, handles the IT. I mean, when they started Guru Update, it was basically just the office manager and some kind of external technician. And when the IT starts to grow up, they needed someone. And uh, uh, I think the, uh, some of them find out that CISO is the good option. Tell us a little bit more about it. I mean, how does, how does uh, being a CISO helps you become a better CIO? How is the process? How, is it, how does this affect on so, you? So I think you touched an interesting subject around how the companies today or how startups actually grow. Um, today, because of uh, SaaS and cloud and, and the enablement basically of simplification of a lot of IT, companies actually start growing without somebody or proper IT. And the, and the proper IT actually moved into the areas of cloud and it's called DevOps. And so the companies start with somebody on the DevOps who doesn't really want to deal with day-to-day IT um, of, of installing computers, of taking care of the network in the office. And these things are also a little bit simpler because of, of, of SaaS. And so the companies start off, they start with 30, 40, 50 people. And if it's a B2B startup, security actually becomes an issue pretty much in the beginning. Because you can't today sell a SaaS service that's supplying another company with, with, a SaaS, uh, with a SaaS service without having the ability to basically uh, protect his data, give him the trust that he needs, and actually um, have the whole security program in place. Um, and that you need to do when you're already 30, 40, 50 people when you're selling your, your service. At that point in time, when you have 30, 40 employees, IT is not that big of an issue. Um, business applications isn't that big of an issue. Um, a lot of these things that organizations already need, and that's when actually IT becomes more important. And uh, I, I think in general, kind of information processes becomes more important when the company starts going into 200, 300 people. Suddenly you understand that you need that whole infrastructure in place for the company itself. And so when I started, basically the company was, I don't know, 50 people, something like that. And we started building up the security program because it was something that was needed. And I was working a lot with the DevOps team. And there was a, a person there who was dealing with IT, but it was from a very more of a help desk kind of uh, environment. And as the company grew and started to scale, I think that um, the ability, because of myself as a CISO, who understood all of the process that was already going in the company, uh, understood, worked with all of the different um, stakeholders in the company, um, the ability to work with different vendors and something that we are already doing heavy as a CISO, I think that really helps you to kind of make the shift into the CIO position and um, allows you to kind of um, see and enable the business even more to another level. Because I think as a CISO in a, in a B2B startup, you're doing a lot of that from the get-go. You're working with the sales teams, you're working with, um, with the development teams, you're working with a lot of these teams already and the shift is much easier. But the, the, the business, who in the business say, okay, we need the CIO right now? I think it, it, it's a mix of things, and I think it really depends on the life of the, of the company. But when the company starts hitting 200, 300 people, everybody understands that it, something's happening here and it's kind of getting messy. And if somebody isn't really starting to look at this, so onboarding becoming really, really hard, offboarding, you suddenly see that uh, maybe somebody's not closing a permission in some third kind of application, which uh, wasn't really important when you were 10 people, but now that you're 300 people and people are leaving more, and that, that, uh, that SaaS service doesn't connect to a single sign-on, so you have to actually manually go and close it. So these processes become a little bit more tight. Um, I think also the borderline between, um, I'm putting aside DevOps, I'm saying like IT in an environment where, um, where things are very SaaS, so like we don't have any servers in the company. Um, we're basically a very strong internet cafe, right? We don't have a lot of uh, 
technology in the company itself. We just basically need a good, strong internet. Um, and even accessing the network itself doesn't really give you any privileges because um, you have to com continue to do authentication into our cloud environment. Um, so, so accessing the office network isn't really an issue from a security perspective. That's kind of the way we architected it also. And no, I, I think that if I, if I, if I can help you, it's, it's say, okay, we need a, a, a CIO when we have too many processes uh, around the people and business that uh, will help the, the company uh, work better and not only for a technological part or a, or a role part. It's need someone that uh, must have a, a high view about the, the IT and, uh, and make it happen better. I think it also comes into a place where your your systems become more important. So financial systems become more important. CRM systems become more important. Um, your, back, uh, your back office application are growing. Yeah, so. it's your back office application, but it's also becoming the backbone of the business. And that's where really the business sits, right? You need the ability to be able to bill, send out invoices, um, pay your suppliers, right? These things are becoming a lot more complicated. They're growing Um, your CRM is becoming much more important. You're, you're scaling your... So I think in the life of a startup, there's also like a few different parts, right? So in the beginning, you need to make sure that your business model works and that you can actually do it. You find your first customers, you find your core customers, you build out your core competency. And at that point in time, it's really be able to grow and scale the company. And so that happens both on the technological level, right? So people are saying you need to scale, you need to be able to grow, but it happens also in the business area, right? You need to be able to build up bigger sales teams, bigger business development teams, And be able to enable those teams to work faster and smarter and more intelligent and that comes basically together to building a technology stack also for um the business users of the environment so i think that's kind of where the role comes into okay and your uh, basically your first your major project in the last couple of years was moving riskified from monolithic application into uh, microservices and this is basically what we came to talk about the challenges of security that you see there but uh, first of all why the move i mean uh, this is a big change for a new company um why did you have to move uh, why did you decide that monolith doesn't work for you anymore so i i think the 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 it's something in the last year that we're doing is really the, the starting to do the move um the company like i said was is growing pretty quickly And um, that uh, enable the enablement to be able to scale the company into the next generation, the next, uh, let's say, 10x of ability to take transactions, um, to speed up the transactions, to be able to supply our customers with better services, more technology, um, doesn't really work very well with the, the ability of the monolith. Um, it also got to the point where you're using a lot of developers and it's also the same code base. Deployments become a big problem, right? You want We basically deploy code five, seven times a day. Um, it's, it's, some, it's not an issue around like when you deploy code. Deploying code is something that happens all the time. And so when you have a lot of people on the same code base and doing a lot of deployments, you start running into problems. And so it's basically the ability to scale the company, scale the development teams, um, and continue to grow to be able to match the business needs is where the, the, the change of kind of architecture and the, the change of perception started coming into the company. And um, it's it's not a it's not a quick process, right? It's not like you kill off your monolith in three months and you're and you're done, right? So you start looking at for areas that are saying, okay, what is not the core competency of the product? Where can I start branching it out? And that's where you kind of start taking these microservices. Um, we also started seeing a lot of load around uh, databases and stuff like that. So that was also a big uh, trigger to kind of say, okay, we want to break these out, branch it into different databases. 
Um, each use case also needs a different data store, a different uh, a different approach to how you want to use data, um, save data, and then actually um, be able to consume the data in an intelligent way. And so that's been kind of the, the, the mission of, um, I think, R&D in general in the company. And as a CISO, that really brought in a lot of challenges because... Uh, okay, now let's talk about those challenges. Yeah. And uh, I want to remind that we are going to um, start try to lay them out into uh, people, process, and technology. Mm-hmm. This is uh, we try to do this in this uh, podcast. I mean, try to lay out everything according to those terms. Um, so um, let's start uh, with this uh, technology. I mean, uh, the move from monolith to microservices. What effect on technologies it had? Did it had? The, the change of technology is very, very vast, right? So I, I can say that we did have one, um, one key factor going for us from the beginning is that we were um, dockerized from day one. So the infrastructure or the stack was basically an EC2 server with a, docker, with a single Docker container running the monolith application. Unmanaged. What do you mean by unmanaged? It doesn't have any Kubernetes or anything that is no, centrally managing it was basically the, the auto, containers. Sorry. It mm. was an auto-scaling kind of environment in AWS. Mm-hmm. Um, we had basically, the monolith had different services kind of running inside it. So um, we did have kind of a breakdown into different services internally. So we had, let's say, a cluster for the API that's coming in. We have a cluster for workers. We had a cluster for um, mailing. We had a cluster for... Etc. A lot of different services. Let's say we have like 15 different types of clusters, and um, each of those clusters was basically an auto-scaling group that basically ran a single EC2 server with the Docker container with the application running on top. And that was kind of where we 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 started the the the, the mission of going to break it out to microservices. And so that was kind of something that was easy for us because we didn't have to first dockerize the application itself. So that was like one big step that we were already ready for. The, this is what I want to say. It, it, it seems that it, it, almost at the beginning of the architecture of, the, of, the, of the, this monolith, you thought about the, the second phase because when I think that people say, think about monolith, they think about the applications before a few years. This is an actual example of how containers doesn't equal microservices, right. where most people think that it basically equals. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. Containers and microservices are, are two different things. Um, we were dockerized for mostly for the simplicity of deployment. And so the, the first person who was there who headed up the DevOps um, was a very forward-thinking type of person, and he built it completely on Docker from day one. And so that did bridge the gap a lot because moving to Kubernetes suddenly didn't mean that you have to deal with Dockerizing the whole application. It dealt more with the underlying infrastructure, how you build out the controls, and how you build out the, the scaling and stuff like that. But the application itself, or the monolith, was, was Dockerized. And so basically, at that point in time, I think the, the R&D started looking at what is the first con- service that we can actually build or move aside that will be the first microservice of the company. Perfect. And um, other aspects of technology, I mean, uh, dealing with permissions, IAM permissions, uh, connecting yeah. that. So there were so many aspects. And I, to be honest, I think we haven't even covered them all at this point in time, because a lot of these things are pretty new. A lot of the controls aren't there. A lot of these projects are open source projects. And some of these things, uh, we can. We were working with an open source project just the other day, and we saw that they're using, uh, um, we wanted to do authentication with OpID Connect. 
and they're using ID tokens instead of access tokens, which is really bad practice. And so you have to really write them, you know, maybe even put in a pull request. So these are things that are kind of all the time kind of structuring. And But I think the main challenges were, first of all, on a very core level, how do you deal with networking? Um, right, suddenly you have one big cluster with all of your microservices inside and you have to take the fundamental things that you know from security, right? And you have to bring that in. So networking is a challenge. Um, and we were using Istio to kind of mitigate and create a lot of controls around that. Sorry, SDO? Istio. Istio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing in the IAM role, since I said we had basically a cluster for every type of microser- uh, every type of um, service that was running, um, we had IAM roles that the EC2 instance had. So bringing that into the cluster also brought in a lot of challenges because you don't want to give the underlying EC2 instances basically a role that can do everything that the microservice on top needs to do. And so that was a big challenge. And we basically used the Kube to IAM, which is basically a proxy for the for the container or for the pod that's running on the Kubernetes to be able to use specific IAM roles. Um, and that's how we bridge that area. Um, so we say the networking, uh, was it networking? Uh, networking separation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, all the pods can talk to each other on Kubernetes. This is most companies. This is where most companies give up uh, when they see this topology. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Um, mm. th- there are a few um, areas around um, separation that you can do. Istio kind of is coming out as the leader. Um, that Again, these are all open source. These are all uh, solutions that are pretty new. So you do have to understand your use case, how you want to separate, what kind of things you want to be able to do. Um, for us, it was very important to allow um, developers to spin up services very quickly. That is something that um, I think is the overall kind of uh, goal, I think, to, to make this thing. It was to really increase the pace of innovation, to increase uh, the ability of developers to put out a new service. If we look at how we were architected um I don't know, like a year ago, to spin up a new microservice, it had to take DevOps person to create a new cluster for you. You had to create a new Git repo. You had to make the new CI CD to make that whole thing work. Um, the whole process could take four or five days um, to actually spin up a new microservice. Security was involved as well in some, some of the, in some of the um, control methods, um, especially if it was a microservice that needed to get um, external traffic and not only internal traffic. And so I think... Um, Istio brought in a lot of those capabilities onto the cluster itself. Um, you can create pretty detailed rules around networking, and it enables um, yourself to also mitigate certain controls. So you can say that um, developers are allowed to spin up a microservice, but it can't get traffic from external traffic and only get internal traffic. And so that's something that we wanted to enable without any um, intervention from the DevOps team or from the security team. Um, and, and the reasoning behind that is that in external service, we have additional controls that we want to sometimes put in place. If it's DDoP protection, if it's WAF protection, depending on the technology, depending on what it is, sometimes you want to pen test the service before you put it up. So it really depends on kind of what the service is. But it, internal services, we kind of wanted to um, let that work a lot faster. Okay, so you have different policies if it's external, if it's uh, uh, internal. Correct. What about people? I mean, I've been watching you in the last uh, couple of months uh, publishing a career uh, post and looking for uh, dev, DevSecOps, operations. I mean, wh- the change from to microservices, how does this affect your team, the, the company, uh, 
knowledge uh, and the, the people that are required? So I don't think that's necessarily the change to microservices that's brought the challenge, but I think um, today in, in today's world, in the world of, um, of infra- infrastructure as a service, we run on AWS and the ability to be able to do security in those environments, it's very technological. You need to have a lot of hands-on experience and this experience is something that today I think in general in the market is something that's hard to find. Um, we all know that there's a DevOps shortage in general. Add on top of that somebody who knows how to do security who's done that, you're looking for some people that don't really exist, right? Um, the classic security people grew up uh, more in the enterprise world. They haven't touched cloud. They have good kind of security controls and methodology, but they have no understanding of um, the pace that we work in in startups and also the technology. I think as the enterprises will move more into the um, into the cloud and we'll see I think a lot of that shortage might even the, the gap will close because I think more people will understand cloud methodologies um, and cloud infrastructure but today I think it's a really really big challenge um, so we actually opened up um, a few roles um, that we're looking for basically DevSecOps um, I think three four months into the search we changed the job description and we really moved it more into like a DevOps role or a senior DevOps role. Um, also understanding while doing interviews that a lot of DevOps, they, they call themselves DevOps and they don't call themselves security people, but they actually have a lot of the fundamental um, knowledge that is needed to be a good security person. So maybe they don't have the methodologies, they don't know um, how to call it in the right jargon for, for security, but they do have good understanding of operating systems in Linux. They do have good understanding of Docker containers. They, good, they do have good understanding of AWS infrastructure, networking. They do have good understanding of how IAM works on AWS. So the core is there. You just have to build on top of that the methodology. And I think that's where I come into play. And um, we have the ability to kind of bring in the methodology with using people who are more DevOps oriented. And I think in time, we'll, they'll grow up into good SecOps people. If we connect it to the, the, the last uh, podcast, the, the first one that we had, that we, had uh, we talked a lot about the, the challenges and the changes of people. And I think that security is a mindset now that should be able, that, that should be uh, used by all people, developers, DevOps, anyone. That was something that uh, in the enterprise on the old-fashioned people Uh, it wasn't so important because it was really close. The per- you, need you, to- you meant that security used to be a, a department on its own. They were yeah. not connected and now they're uh, more integrated into the team. Now every, oper- every operation guy and every developer has to be a security guy. Yeah, that's for sure. I think that Yuval uh, um, is also uh, saying another thing that every security guy needs to be a little bit of a developer yeah. or, uh, right. or operation guy. Yeah. And, uh, Especially in the roles that are working in those areas. I mean, we do have, let's say, people that are more methodological and they work more on the compliance sides and stuff like that. They do need to have an understanding. And if they had a better understanding, I think their role would be even more significant. Mm-hmm. But I think today in general, um, I even see it in the worlds of IT, in the worlds of BI, because now I'm running a few different teams. And so I think the ability to be able to develop, or I don't really want to call it develop, but be, let's say, one step up of let's say the scripts that we ran in the 90s i think it's kind of uh um 
it, it'll bridge gaps, right? So I can give you a little use case. We wanted to, we use Okta as our IDP and kind of the infrastructure for, for our directory. Um, and we wanted to basically know who has, um, what type of multi-factor they're using because we started using push. Uh, we enable push for all of our users to kind of simplify things. Um, and then some of the first users registered SMS. It's also known that that's not the most secure kind of 2FA. And we want to move from that to, um, to the push for everyone. Um, Okta doesn't have a basic report that can push put that out. They'll say, okay, here's the API. And now suddenly an IT person who wants to just know what type of multi-factor he's using, he needs to run an API query, pull all the users out, get their IDs. He needs to run another query on that ID that says, okay, what multi-factor is he using? And then filter out the ones that aren't using the right one. And you can't really call that development, but you can, you do need to be able to write an API call to loop mm -hmm. it and to run another API call on that. It's very simple, um, but it's a very basic kind of need that I think that everybody right now, um, that's at least my approach to things. Everybody needs to have that ability to do. And I think also working into security and security automation is the more you have those capabilities, I think the more you can do. It is a developer's world, as Google was saying. Right. <laughs> I yeah. agree. So the last, uh, we talked about technology, we talked about the people, the process. How do you change the, the process in the company so it will better fit your security challenges in this new microservices environment? I guess the first thing would be uh, automation, right? You said that uh, previously uh, um, each developer had to, when he had to run a new service, he had to call the operation. So how do you do this? Again, oh. what is your, I mean, uh, how much freedom do you give you to your uh, developers? And what, where do you force them to uh, comply to your uh, policy? Or uh, where do you interfere when they started a new service? So I think in general, something that is an overall kind of, and I said it before, but I think it's really important. It's something that, to be honest, it's not something that we security um, built the initiative. I think it was very uh, much the DevOps who came with this culture is let the developers work, let them do their job. Um, they don't need us or security in the way to let them be able to, to do their job in a good way. We need to be silent partners, um, create the right controls to be able to, to let them do their work a lot faster, a lot quicker, which enables the company to scale. And um, this approach is something that changes fundamentally everything we do as security people. Um, we like to be the kind of the door. We like to be able to approve everything on the way. Um, and, that, and that's a core change for, our, for us. And I think it's a core change for the, for the business. Um, developers, I think beforehand, they knew how to write the code and they did in some way do the deployment, but they didn't really write the deployment scripts or anything that actually pushes the code into servers. Um, this change really changed everything around it. It really brings up the developers and lets them say, you guys are in charge of your service. Um, from the code to the operation to the scaling issues that it has, it really puts um, the operational burden back onto the developers. And this is something that, again, is very different from core enterprises where you said developers don't go into production environments, right? So you have operational teams that go into a production environment. Um, this methodology in the startups doesn't work. Um, not only does it not work, we, we actually think that it um, creates better developers when they have the knowledge and also they understand how things run in production. They actually write better code. <laughs> and so... And if, if I connect it to the uh, and monolith, it's really uh, more difficult to do it. When it's microservice, you can give the, the, 
you can give them better freedom because they're uh, they are responsible for a smaller part for freedom of and the, responsibility yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. they're responsible for a smaller part they have less chances of screwing up the entire system yeah yeah so like i said we we, we build down processes that says okay what what does a developer need to to spin up a new service and so we we started looking at all the different kind of um aspects of it from the git repo and we understood that we need to be able them to build out new git repos and create the permissions on that um we looked at the um underlying infrastructure and so kubernetes was basically chosen um and it was chosen for many many reasons but a lot of the reasons is was that you can actually write a lot of code around um the new microservice build it as part of the service itself so you can basically write as part of the microservice the specific specifications that you need um how many pods do you need how does it scale all of these things can be written as part of the microservice um and then the deployment is still something that i think the infrastructure of the deployment is still run by the devops team so the ci and the cd is still run by the devops team but the ability to use that now is much more simplified and so today a new developer who wants to spin up a new microservice can do that in a much more quicker way he can get his repo he can write his own kubernetes configuration and that's something that can actually push the um the microservice into production in a matter of hours and instead of 4 or 5 days that he was doing before and so that kind of increase in pace is something that's very important for the business and also from a security perspective we built in the different gates like i said if it needs external traffic we still need to be involved um we're now looking really much at the um the 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 overarching environment of areas which we didn't touch at this point um and that is if a new microservice needs a new s3 bucket or if it needs a new queue on aws or it needs a new database we want to be able to developers to do that with something right now that we're still doing centralized um and that needs a new architecting of the aws architecture and i think what aws did with organizations now allows you to build out a better account strategy to again enable your developers to do a lot of the things that today devops are still doing amazing so uh, we are running out of time here even though i have a couple of other questions but let me try to summarize this uh, for a second after that i'll get back to you for the uh, last sentence so uh, moving uh, to monolith uh, from monolith to microservices uh, i think the the biggest challenge as you said is not having the operations or the security as a bottleneck uh in order to that you dealt basically in three uh, different aspects from the technology point of view you moved from a unmanaged dockerized environment into my, into a managed kubernetes which support basically support your uh, your new environment you uh, have new management features that you are able to give permissions and let everybody basically build his own service without uh, any interference you managed to integrate this into your back office you managed to integrate this to, to into your front end which is into uh, story to your IT management which is the kubernetes and this is uh, by the way this is, and this is a good example of why uh, unmanaged docker is not microservices as we said from the people point of view we need developers we need people to at least understand development they need to able to write a small script basically troubleshoot or uh, debug a certain script this is the a core capability in the next uh, couple of years not for developers but only for but also for IT for operations from a process point of view the question is uh, basically how much freedom should i give them versus to what responsibility should they have and how do i uh, monitor them and uh, the idea here is that your guidelines are that the developer should be able to have his own microservice up and running without anybody's help 
And in order to do that, you have your certain uh, checkpoints or uh, get, I don't know, gateways that you need to move them across. And some of them they could do independently and some of them they, can, uh, they need your help. And basically the line is shifting all the time. The border between what they can do independently and what, what you forces them to go with you goes... I mean, it's changing according to the maturity of the company and the maturity, I guess, of your uh, programming infrastructure. This is a never-ending uh, story. Interesting. Anything uh, you want to say to close this up about the move? Uh, yeah, move? so I think it's really important for companies to understand why they want to change their architecture. Um, the move to Kubernetes is a very complicated one. It brings in a lot of security challenges, not only security challenges, it brings in a lot of operational and security challenges. Um, I think today there's also many ways of doing a microservice architecture with less um, owning the infrastructure with worlds of serverless um, and other areas that are kind of managed Kubernetes services. So it's really important to understand the maturity of the company, where they need to go um, before really jumping into this Kubernetes uh, buzzword because uh, it's complicated and not, doesn't necessarily bring the value that it needs. So companies need really, really need to evaluate what, why they're doing it, what their goals are, and to choose the right technology to get, kind of get there. Great. Thank you very much, Yuval. It thank was uh, really interesting. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you all the listeners uh, for uh, listening to Silverline in the podcast for security and professionality.